Stunt Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Matthew again, and I'm back with another Sense Spotlight on the Scent Podcast. This week, I was fortunate to be able to speak with The Sarah Show, aka Sarah Zucker, who is a VHS artist, video artist, writer, really just an all-around creative talent and an amazing artist. We spoke about her really funny, really engaging creative journey, which began with gift making of the great Cornholio in middle school, which progressed to a passion for photography and mammography, uh, which ultimately led her to working with video. Talked about a lot of really fun, interesting topics. We dove deep into Sarah's experience as a psychonaut, her relationship with psychedelic substances as seen through some of her work, such as the Eternal Now piece, which I was fortunate to collect. We also talk about what it's like to be an artist and collector and some strategies for both parties in this burgeoning NFT crypto art space. A lot of people were shouted out in this episode, a lot of new people, including folks such as Edgar Fabian Fias, Pix, Nils Hansen, Matt Kane, who got shouted out several times, and several others. And without further ado, please enjoy that conversation I had with Sarah Zucker, aka The Sarah Show. Cool. Okay, we're live. This is Matthew. I'm back with another Scent Spotlight. This week, I'm really happy to welcome the video artist and writer, Sarah Zucker, aka The Sarah Show. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. And well, it would be awesome if you could introduce yourself to the audience and tell us who you are, where you've come from. And when people talk about the Sarah show, uh, who is this artist that we speak of? Sure. Um, Well, like you said, I'm, I'm Sarah Zucker. I I currently live in Los Angeles, um, pretty much under the Hollywood sign. I like to say I'm like the troll that, that guards it. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm here by way of uh, New York, by way of Ohio. Well, by way of Chicago, by way of Ohio. Um, that's where I began my life, <laughs> my storied life in, in Canton, Ohio is my hometown. Um, and yeah, I sort of always knew. Uh, I, I think I always knew that I, that I would end up in Los Angeles um, I actually unearthed a time capsule I created in 1999 when I was in the seventh grade that, that said as much that was like where it was all about where you thought, where I thought I'd be in the year 2020. And it said, Oh yeah, I'll be in Los Angeles. Didn't get all the predictions. Right. But that one, I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this has been on my radar for a while. Um, and yeah, as an artist, like you said, I, I, I identify as a video artist. I identify as a, a GIF artist, a glitch artist, a multidisciplinary artist. Um, uh, you know, like like many of us, it's it's can feel at once uncomfortable to try to put yourself in a in a definable box, but you also can recognize the value of that. Uh, it's nice for people to be able to like refer to you as, oh, she does that thing. Um, so those are things I do. Um, but, but really my background is kind of, it's kind of been a Byzantine route of getting there. Um, really, I would say I originally got into photography as a teenager, um, specifically film photography at a time when everyone was going all digital. Um, and, and I don't know, I'd, I'd like to say it, it, it's not, it wasn't just sort of like a hipster contrarian attitude uh, that I was like, no, I'm only using film. Um, it was, it was, you know, I was like, I was a kid. So it was maybe a little bit of that, but I think it was also for me about the excitement of the physicality of it. Um, because an image is essentially virtual, you know, it's essentially a, a thought form when it's digital. Um, and I, I always liked that working with film photography allowed me to be almost more sculptural in how I approached it. And I would say that carries over to what I do now with video work. 
is I really like to think about video in a sculptural way. So even though, again, it's, it's virtual, it's, it exists in the ether, um, I like to tease out um, these more sort of physical elements. And that's, that's why I now, you know, similar to myself as a teenager, defiantly working with film, I now work defiantly with VHS tapes, which are incredibly obsolete. Um, but again, I, I really, I don't think it's, or I, I know it's not, it's really has nothing to do with being contrarian or being, or taking the pose of being intentionally antiquated. Um, it, it's really for me more about, I, I like the container of it. I like, you know, I think as artists, any, having any sort of container, any sort of limitation actually is a tool for your creativity. So there are great limitations to the medium that I find allow me to really just let myself go wild with how I want to express myself. Um, but yeah, so photography was really how I got into it all. Um, and yeah, and I, I studied, I studied uh, screenwriting and that's still... Um, very much a huge part of my practice and what I do. And it really informs my art and it informs my life. Um, thinking about things from a narrative perspective and thinking about, um, you know, the, the confluence of what we would consider film and what we would consider art. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And you, you kind of touched on the, I guess the creative moments or the, the key creative moments in your life that have led up to now. But I'm wondering if you could, if you could kind of trace in a little bit more detail uh, the, the creative life journey that has seen you become a prolific GIF artist with like over 5 billion views on Giphy, starting your own animation studio, Yo Merrill, writing, and then being a Jeopardy champion. Your, your life yes. is so <laughs> freaking awesome. Oh, thanks. But I'm just curious to hear <laughs> from your, your own words, that life journey. Sure. Um, you know, I can't, I can't point to an exact moment. I, I think like my, my parents have told me, they're like, you know, we knew, we knew you were never going to become like a scientist or something. Like it was pretty clear from my earliest days that I, I really just like my number one passion and value is creative expression. Um, I have this photo I found of myself as like a three-year-old with all my paintings that I had displayed on the floor of the bathroom and was like welcoming people into my gallery of like, who who would like a painting, you know? And I, I when I found that photo, I was like, mm, yeah, that's, that's telling. Um, and then it's funny, like with GIF, that is such a serendipitous route that um, I made my first GIF when I was 12 to advertise a web ring that I had for my GeoCities website and I got really into making GIFs and I think at the time I was making them in like Microsoft Paint and I, and I don't and maybe using like a web tool or something to animate them I'm not even sure and then I had this like sort of watershed moment in the sixth grade where you know we'd have like computer lab time and your your class would just kind of you'd have an hour or two in the computer lab to do like an independent study basically and I was really obsessed with Beavis and Butthead. And um, there I, so I, I was editing this GIF of the Great Cornholio, like a GIF I had found on GeoCities, but I was editing it to have te like really, you know, I was 12. I was a, also like a 12 year old girl. So I was editing it to have all this like sparkly rainbow text that said like, give me, give me TP for my bunghole. Like, you know, very high minded. And, and I was editing this GIF and, um, and my sixth grade teacher, who was, for lack of a better word, just an asshole, like he, he was going to have me expelled. And he, and I, I, of course, like I cried. It was so embarrassing, uh, you know, being shamed for like gift making in the, in the sixth grade. And I think about this all the time, how like this, this thing I do is, is obtuse, but like the people who get it, get it. And the people who don't get it are, are like, <laughs> can be almost like violently against it. Um, but, but it, I don't know, it's just a memorable moment for me because when I think about this history of gift making, I'm like, oh yeah, there actually was this like really intense moment, very 
like pretty early in my life. And then the photography for me in high school, I got really into this movement called lamography. So it was, it, it was like these film cameras. They basically um, salvaged all these film cameras that glutted the market after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, because the Soviets had these great optics, like they great glass optics. They they both sort of were imitating the ja- like uh, the high end Japanese optics, but they kind of came up with their own approach to it. And people in the West had never seen cameras like this because the Soviet Union was closed. So all of a sudden, Westerners had access to all these like awesome cameras for dirt cheap. And these Austrian marketing students saw an opportunity. And they created this this thing, this called Lomography. I'm, I'm saying thing, it's a company. But to me, as a 16-year-old in you know suburban Ohio, it felt like a movement. The fact that it was a company was sort of like secondary. Um, and I, I joined like a, uh, like their website was sort of a proto social media before Facebook, where you would upload photos you had taken and you could create grids out of them and do all this cool stuff. And I, at 16, like put my home address on my, on my website, you know, on their, on their site and, and ask people to send me their photos. And like, I got the coolest stuff from all over the world, um, from, from people who I had befriended through the internet in like 2002, 2003. And, and then this, uh, there was, um, a bulletin board I posted on outside of the company called Lomo.us. So it was just all people who really were in this vein of being interested in what's called toy camera photography, which is like cameras made with plastic lenses that are considered toys because they're not precise. Um, so it was like a lot of that and, and, and Lomography, these like Russian cameras. Um, and I would just post, you know, I was taking photos all the time and I'd post photos from my daily life and was getting people from all over the world as as a high schooler in suburban Ohio before Facebook I was getting people from all over the world engaging with my work and admiring my work and encouraging me and it was hugely formative um, to the point that and, and I got so into it and I so loved you know tinkering with these cameras that by the end of high school I was testing cameras for the company like they would send me new prototypes and for me to test out and then they would use photos of mine in their branding and stuff. And in the course of all that, I went to Chicago for college. I studied theater. Um, It was there that I sort of realized maybe act. I I studied, I wanted to be an actor and I sort of shifted my focus there to screenwriting because there was a screenwriting program that I'd gotten into and found I had a knack for it. And, and again, I had certain champions there who were really encouraging me in that regard. And then I got into grad school for screenwriting in New York. So I went to New York. I was in grad school. Again, having the, t- I mean, having the time of my life, like being in your early 20s in New York City with student loan money in your pocket is like a great place to be as long as you just kind of like keep blinders on as to what happens after that, after the money runs out, after that all ends. But at that time, I mean, it was like the time of my life. And at that time, I actually, the Lomography had a store that was like a block away from where I went to school in, in Greenwich Village. And so I started working there and I would have people come in to this store, you know, because New York City is such a hub of like the globe I'd have people come in who I remembered from high, you know, that I I remembered their screen names from when I was in high school. Like, you know, cause I put it up on my Lomography website, like, Oh, the Sarah, the Sarah show is like, I'm working at, I'm working at the New York store. Like come see me. And people would come in looking for me. And even long after I left that job, people would come in being like, is the Sarah show here? I heard she works here now, which um, my screen name, by the way, the Sarah show I came up with when I was eight for AOL Instant Messenger. Um, (laughs) Shout out AIM, nice. Yeah, shout out AIM. Um, And it's it's one that like, trust me, I'm, you know, I'm in my 30s now. There have definitely been times where I've been like, maybe I should change that. It's a little infantile, (laughs) you know, like, and and I've definitely had people read me for it or, or try to come for me and be like, yeah, what's that? Are you like, are you just like an attention whore? What's your deal? And it's kind of that thing where at this point I'm like, this is now 
been my screen name for like 25 years. So many people through from so many different eras of my life know me by this screen name that I almost think of it like provenance that I'm like, yeah, I'm like my, my photography from that previous era of my life is also associated with the screen name, the Sarah show. And as is the gif I made that I got in trouble for in the sixth grade made as the Sarah show. Like I kind of am at this point where I'm like, Oh, I know, I know it's the kind of name an eight year old comes up with for their imaginary show in their bedroom, because that is what it is. Like, that's what it is. So, but yeah, so, so that's all to say after Lamography, it really was just, you know, like any of us, I think there's, I think we have to allow ourselves to naturally shift and the film photography just started to get really expensive. Like when I was in high school, I could still take my rolls of film to the local grocery store and pay four or five bucks to get a roll of film developed. And by the time, you know, by by the like a decade ago, it was already like 20 bucks a roll. Um, and I was a starving artist. I had to leave New York City when I ran out of money. And I, I lived I lived in Ohio for a year and w- with my parents and um, like saving up money and, and plan, you know, planning to move to Los Angeles. And during that time, that was a really pivotal transitional year, not only because I think I needed a certain amount of humble pie. Um, I had really, it's not that I, I, you know, I wasn't such a crazy egomaniac, but like anyone, it's like in your early twenties, you just have this sense of like infallibility. And um, I don't know. I think, I think in the long run, it was good for me to sort of be reminded like, no, appreciate when things are going really well, because then they aren't, you know, like, the good times end that's and and then they'll come back again like it's life is goes in cycles and um while i was living in ohio i became the interim curator of a photography gallery there this gallery also had a um like a a, a print a print workshop and framing room so in curating this gallery i not only learned about provenance about the print market about value, you know, valuations on artists' work and how, and how to negotiate sales, all these things. I also learned how to do my own printing, like, and, and print my, and I did this massive, not massive, but I, I, I did a run of a lot of my um, best photography work and, and made sales. And that's part of how I saved up money to get to Los Angeles by doing all these photography sales. And I think that process is also what taught me about editioning and about creating um, scarcity around your work and creating desirability around your work. And, um, and at that time, um, a friend of mine gave me a software that someone she knew had developed that let you, it was essentially a mixer for video uh, for live mixing, which, you know, this was around 2011 and there wasn't really much like that out yet. And, um, you know, she said, my friend is designing, designed this software. He needs people to test it. I immediately thought of you because, you know, especially later as I was working with photography, I did start experimenting more and more with video. I was shooting with this camera called a Harina Zumi, which is this tiny little Japanese camera that's super lo-fi. Um, but it had just this really, I just loved the aesthetic of it, this really gritty it in some ways almost mimicked like an eight millimeter look um, and it shot photos and video. So I'd been shooting a lot of video on that. Um, But really it was that it was my friend, Natalie giving me this software that got me starting to think about video and noodling the video. And, and then when I finally did move to LA at the end of 2011, I almost immediately, because I'd been using, I'd been doing live video for for my friend's band in Chicago. So upon getting to LA, that's I immediately started doing that. I started doing live visuals for um, my roommate's band in Los Angeles, and I realize now, in retrospect, like I got to project at some of the biggest venues here, um, which really, if nothing else, like anymore, if I go to a concert, I'm like, oh yeah, I was here, like seven, eight years ago. 
And yeah, and so I almost immediately got my first music video commission and it just kind of all snowballed from there. Um, But at that time, I was really using a mixture of footage I was shooting myself and found footage, archival footage, um, you know, interesting stuff I was just finding on the internet. And then, and that's when I started in 2014, I started my other studio, Yo Merrill, with my then girlfriend, now wife, Bronwyn. Um, because we had an opportunity to do uh, GIF animations for the Brooklyn Museum. And, and it was, as far as, I mean, there's a press piece about us in the cut. I, I didn't really do, uh, do the due diligence to make sure this is true, but I would assume they did, that they said it was the first time a, a major museum had commissioned a GIF art series. And then I would say it was, I think it was end of 2014 into 2015 So really not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, that is when I started going, huh, I wonder what I can do with VHS. And I started collecting vintage gear and like, you know, there is, it's a scene. There's definitely people out there that make equipment, new equipment for working with VHS, working with analog video. So I have some of that too. You know, I have these devices that let me apply all these like glitch effects and stuff. Um, so between the new stuff, you know, the new cool equipment I have and some of the vintage equipment I've collected, I, I, over the years have just built out this analog rig that has two TVs, mixer, you know, all this, all this stuff. And then I, I conceived a way to pipe in, um, you know, my, my laptop, like I, I can, so I pipe in, I create a lot of things digitally and then I pipe them into the rig and then and that's where then I am able to do a lot of you know what I was calling like the sculptural work of how do I manipulate this um this raw thing I've come up with or this digital animation and so that pretty much brings us up to now (laughs) that's that's the full tale I love this story (laughs) like I'm gonna go back and listen and it's so fascinating and I love where we ended up on the VHS work, because for me personally, when I first came across you, I think it was on Super Rare and it was your VHS work that really caught me. And shortly thereafter, I was recording a spotlight with Matt Kane, and we were uh, talking about you actually. And he's just blown away with how you are taking this old tech and you're pushing it further than anyone back then who used it professionally had ever thought to push it like looking at the pieces that you you make using VHS it's just so striking but i'm curious from your perspective when you're you're creating the, your works like for example the eternal now what part of you do you think is reflected in these pieces uh, is it like an experience yeah just i'm super curious to hear from your perspective wow i love that question um it's funny i i uh, last week was talking to a a collector and curator who I was putting together a, a portfolio of work for him. And he asked me sort of a similar thing about that exact same piece of like, where did that come from? Where does it come from? You know, I, I have a very good friend named Edgar Fabian Frias, who's this, who's also an incredible artist and mystic and visionary. And um, the way he, that's, that's how he, you know, that's how he named my, my skill is I, I'm a visionary. Uh, he and I both laugh. We both have um, crossed eyes. And so, so, which is, which is a, um, it's my, my dad's actually an eye doctor. So I like know that the, the technical name for that is strabismus. And, and Edgar and I always joke about our strabismus magic. Um, because I mean, historically and mythologically, people with blindness or with eye issues are regarded in mythology as seers. Like, so very often, like oracles and uh, you know uh, Tiresias in in the Oedipus trilogy, like seers are often depicted as blind because they have inner sight, and we joke about that. But how it's like, I I am limited. We are all limited, you know, as as functional human beings. We have limitations to our functionality, and my my bad eyesight is like one of my limitations that has in this very beautiful way brought about 
why I make what I make and how I make what I make. Um, I think even dating back to when I shot film photography, half of my photos were out of focus because my eyes don't focus. <laughs> of course, my photos aren't in focus. My eyes aren't in focus. But I learned to embrace that imperfection as a form of abstraction, as a form of expression, of going, it's about a feeling. It's not about precision. And I, I feel the exact same way with my VHS work. It's about a feeling. It's not about precision. I, I really am an expressionist in that way. Um, but I would say, you know, it, I, I have all these different strains in my work. And, and the reason I brought up Edgar is, is that he said about me that my, my gift is that I'm, I'm a visionary. I channel visions. But a work like Eternal Now, that's just born out of me sitting at my rig and being with where I am and being with a feeling. And again, like I said, I, I have a background as a screenwriter. I have a background in writing. And so I'm, I'm hyperverbal. And um, so it's that. I, I find that, that I have great facility with, pulling the ineffable out of the ether and, and giving form to it in the form of words. I might not be able to draw a picture of someone that's accurate, but I, I can describe them beautifully. Um, and, and so with eternal now, that's a concept that comes from, um, an Alan Watts lecture about meditation and how I'm, I'm, I'm clumsily paraphrasing, but the idea that meditation allows this sense of timelessness and allows you to be present in a way where you are within the eternal now. And that's actually a phrase that really I seized on in 2012 in, during an acid trip, um, which I've, I've only very recently come out as a psychonaut. Um, at 22, I sort of like got that first glimpse of it and then have been fortunate to be able to have these acid trips, you know, every couple years where I really get to touch that space again. And in 2012, that was when the concept of the eternal now really came to me and in a way where I realized the notion of it is, is about recursion and video feedback is about recursion. The, the concept of an image or concept or number that repeats on itself um, and how each iteration is then including the previous iteration. So, so much of my work is, you know, physically incorporates video feedback. You know, I'm pointing a camcorder at a TV screen that is receiving the feed from that camcorder. But yeah, I, I, I hope that answers your question. It's, it's all to say that that was a piece that the phrase was with me and I had this idea of a new way I wanted to work with video feedback that I had never really tried before uh, with my mixer and, and, and how I was going to pipe in some um, back, background animation. And I was like, that's the phrase. That's what it needs to be because that's what this piece will be. It'll be this, this perfect recursive loop. I mean, you more than answered the question. And <laughs> I mean, when I first came across this, I mean, I'm so thankful to have had the opportunity to collect that particular piece. But when I came across it, it was that recursive nature of the, the image. I was like, fuck yeah. And it took me back to, this is so crazy. When I was in high school, literally the weekend after we graduated uh, senior year, I had my first acid trip. I was working at Blockbuster, wrapped up one night, came home with a friend. and I was just, a video store person too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I could have imagined. And, yeah. <laughs> and, but it was a crazy night. It was very long. And the next morning, I just went on this crazy bike ride. Like I was still, still full of energy. I was coming down. It was just very clear. And I just remember to myself, just repeating in my mind for whatever reason, just like be here now, be here now. Uh, and that concept of, of being here now and how that just over time, every moment just overlays onto your life and is always a part of it. But it's focusing on that now is so incredibly, crucially important. And I saw this piece and I was like, this is the, the, the Sarah show piece that I need to put in my collection. So I love your story. Well, that <laughs> makes me so glad that you that you collected it maybe without, cause I don't think I said that in the description of it. Never, no. <laughs> this came out of it. I'm curious how you approach work that ultimately will be 
put on sale, like, uh, I mean, just keeping it in the realm of, of uh, like tokenized art or crypto art, whatever you want to call it. When you approach a piece that you'll ultimately put on uh, the marketplace, what is like your, your process from conception to ultimately putting them up for sale? Well, you know, it's interesting that recursion came up because I think that where I am with my crypto art practice right now is definitely recursive in the sense that um, in the sense that the sales I make inform what I continue to make. Um, and I'm sure that's probably true of most crypto artists to varying degrees. Um, you know, some people it's very clear, and I don't mean this as a criticism, but, but some artists it's very clear that they are seeing what is selling. They're seeing what is making the big figures and they are replicating it or they're, or they're letting that, really strongly inform their future pieces. And then with other artists, you see that it's, it doesn't inform it at all. You know, they're just making what they make. And I am somewhere between those two poles. Um, because the bottom line is, I think, as I said at the outset, I am, I am multifarious. I am multidisciplinary. I have many different strains in my work. Um, I've all, I've, I am often resistant to describing myself as a VHS artist or sometimes even as a video artist. I, I typically just describe myself as an artist because again, while I recognize the value in being specific, like I really recognize the value in being specific. Um, I also recognize the value in needing some room to move and needing some room to experiment and grow and change and do something completely different. I, I've always been that way. I will always be that way. I do not like getting painted into a corner. Um, and, 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 I, and I recognize that there's a downside to that. Um, but that being said, what I can do and what I like to do and what I am now seeing um, does help yield sales because it's giving people that context that, that, you know, collectors need a context for what is the work, where does it, where does it fit into my body of work? Um, where I almost think now about my different styles as, as series, you know, I have my video drawing series, which I draw with this 1991 video painter. Um, and I actually have only tokenized, or, or prior to last week, I only tokenized one of those because I love them, I, I, but they're bonkers. Like, they're my drawings. And part of why I like the video painter, again, it's a limitation. It's drawing with pixels. So it kind of is like even someone who'd be an incredible, incredible at drawing, their art wouldn't necessarily be incredible <laughs> in that same way with this, like, vintage video device. Um, so I like the limitation of it because it suits, again, my eyes don't focus. It, my drawings are a little out of whack, um, but they're all out of whack in a way that I think is recognizably mine because I've been drawing for so long. It's such a huge part of my practice. Um, so yeah, again, prior to last week before I, I put out this little portfolio of pieces for a private collector, I'd only tokenized one. It sat untouched for like months. Um, and, and I saw that and I went, okay, I tried it. That was one of, that was one of my personal favorites. It's called Astral Antenna. Um, it was drawn during, uh, a mushroom trip <laughs> on New Year's and eventually Matt Cain bought it and he liked it so much. He wrote a scent post about it and about my work. And it was that, again, that's what I mean by I am, I am not someone who is, I am always taking in feedback, good and bad. You know, I want to know. I want to know how the work is landing on people. I want to know, again, I'm fine with some of my work being internal, being like, this was really great for me to make for myself. That's okay. You know, I, I think that work has a great deal of value as well. Not everything is meant to be sold. Not everything is meant to be shared. Um, and so for so long when I had gotten really no activity on that piece, I thought, okay, these video drawings, like, I love them. I think they're some of my most exciting work, but maybe there's just not the collectors for them in this space right now. And then all of a sudden, Matt bought that piece, and, I, and then I have people coming out of the woodwork being like, I actually loved that. 
and I just felt like I couldn't pay you enough for it. Or that was like, that's the thing I hear a lot of like, I really want one of your pieces, but I, and, and I appreciate that when someone says to you, it's worth an amount of money that I am not currently able to part with. I, un, I'm an artist. I understand that impulse completely where you're like, I don't want to insult you with a bid that is not worthy of the work. Um, and so I really, you know, when Matt bought that, it really galvanized me in a way to be like, yeah, I love these, these video drawings or VHS paintings. I also call them, um, like I love them and I, and that's, I'm, I'm hoping to release some more of those. Um, this is sort of like a follow-up question, like pulling the lens back on crypto art a little bit more uh, broadly to you, like what does the whole crypto art scene or movement or whatever you want to call it, like signify to you? Uh, like me looking at your work, it seems like as you uh, categorize it in these series, it seems like it's providing you a really great experimentation bed um, to really express, like you mentioned, like the multifarious aspects of your creative personality. Uh, I mean, how, how do you conceive of crypto art? Oh, well, I love, I love this question because it, it's like, it's a pet topic of mine right now. I'm, I'm probably, if, if I were allowed to go to a party, say right now, and I weren't, you know, (laughs) trapped in my house, I'd be that person at the party talking your ear off about this. Um, Because I, I, you know, I joined Super Rare in April of last year. So I've been doing, I've been in the crypto art space for exactly a year. And really only up until the past couple months, I was in such an experimental place with all of it that I was very like, uh, very much of the mind of like, this is something I'm doing for me that I'm exploring. I recognize this, this burgeoning community here, but it's also nascent that I'm not necessarily going to go blow the trumpet on the rooftops to be like, hey, everybody, <laughs> there's this thing. Because I could recognize as a space, it wasn't quite ready yet. Um, and um, But that's all to say, the reason I joined up last year, I saw another digital artist who was on Super Rare and who started posting you know, I followed them already on social media and they started saying, oh my, come buy this work. It's on super rare. And I was like, mm? like, what, 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 what? And I went and looked and it was for me, this almost like the actualization of a prophecy because I did an interview with Vice in, I want to say 2013 or 2014 with my creative partner at the time. Um, that really was just a meandering interview. It was, it was a similar to this of like, go Sarah, what do you have to say? Um, but it, they framed it as the, the headline was the future of gifts as gallery art. And it was something that had been set up because the writer knew I had this background working in a gallery. And at the time was, you know, had, was, was working in GIF art and making a name for myself in GIF art and Giphy had only just launched. Like my decision to work um, in GIF really corresponds to that year. That, and it's not because Giphy, I think I was already working in GIF and then Giphy launched and I was like, oh, that's great. This is now, aside from my Tumblr, which is where everything was going, I was like, now I have this other place I can put all my GIFs that seems like it's really going to help get them out there. And in this interview, um, I, you know, I, I will not profess to be someone who was like a, a cryptocurrency acolyte from the early days, but I definitely was already interested in it. I, I got into Dogecoin back then because um, it felt accessible and silly. And I was like, yeah, Dogs. Um, so I like kind of understood crypto art or I'm sorry, cryptocurrency and was lurking on Reddit enough to kind of like get a taste for like what was going on with Bitcoin and Ethereum wasn't a thing yet, but it was kind of like on the horizon. And in this interview with Vice, I just sort of riffed on this idea. And, and I'm not saying I came up with this by any means. I, I think I probably must have seen other people talking about it, but I was in this interview talking about how I was excited for the moment when blockchain technology reached a point that we could use it to digitally edition digital artworks and screen-based artworks. Um, so that was 2013. So when I saw this, this other artist 
showing that they were selling their work. And when I clicked and saw what Super Rare was, what it was about, and I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is that thing. Now, you know, what, 2013 to 2019, six years later, now it's time. It's time to, it's time, it's, we have the technology now. Um, because again, like I said, I started working with video in 2011 and I have been, I've had the good fortune to be asked to show my work in art fairs, in, you know, gallery settings. And prior to this ability to tokenize works, the way you would sell a video artwork is that you'd have to physicalize it somehow. So that either would look like a, fl- like a flash drive that you would sign an edition or, you know, a lot of video artists, they basically have to come up with a sculpture, uh, you know, that you sell, like Nam June Paik, like you sell a TV that, in- that contains the video. Well, that's a sculpture that incorporates video. That's not the video itself. Um, so that need to physicalize the work. And again, I, I know because I, I took that route um, when I did the spring break art fair where I, I got a golden flash drive. Like it was a gold covered flash drive that I signed. Like it was a, and I p- presented it in this beautiful box and no one bought it because it's like, who the fuck wants to buy a flash drive for $2,000, you know? Um, but it was like, but yeah, but the video, the, the video work, that's my valuation of it. That's what it was worth. Um, and so it's all to say that um, for me, crypto art, and it's, it's funny you ask this because I think just yesterday, I've, I'm doing a massive overhaul of my website that's literally like years in the making, which is embarrassing. As, as a digital artist, I don't know... Maybe I'm not alone in that, but like for some reason, my web, my personal website is like the last thing I update, the last thing I mess with. Cause it's just like, oh, how do I, how do I explain myself now? I don't know. I'm in flux. Um, but, but as of late, I've been like, okay, some of these things are like years out of date. You have to, you have to update this. So yesterday I added a, a, a snippet about crypto art to my bio. And it felt mon- monumental. It was like, oh, this is now at a point and I have now established myself enough in this community and in this space that I feel this is worth mentioning in the way I describe myself, you know, um, that this is, this is something I think I, I already in the past month, I've started to see other artists who I have followed on Tumblr or on Instagram, you know, other digital artists who I've admired for a long time are starting to join the space. Like, like pack pie, pie uh, slices and trippy yogi, um, these people joining where I'm like, ah yes, like come on in, the water's nice, like because these people are so talented and I yeah. admired their work for years. So it's just like with every person who joins the space, there's also that excitement of like, oh, we all rise together for every like um, for every reputable or well-known artist who joins, it makes the entire space have more legitimacy. Um, and that's the tipping point that I've been experiencing really very recently um, of, okay, I think we've shifted. Of course, everything is still experimental, but we've shifted out of that early nebulous primordial soup into, oh no, there are there are now tropes. There are now patterns. There are now... Um, unspoken or, or or spoken best practices that are that are that have emerged. That there's there's a language and a dance that we're all doing, um, and so as a as a someone whose work is at the moment primarily screen based, it's not to say I won't again. Just as I did when I was younger, I might shift my focus again in time. But for right now, my work is almost entirely screen based crypto art and the ability to tokenize an edition and create scarcity around what is essentially a virtual work. I mean, it's, it's a complete game changer. It, it, it completely changed the landscape of how I think about my work and how I, um, you know, create work. Yeah. And well, I, I totally see the same thing that you're seeing. But the last question I like to, to finish up on, and this is something that I've, again, talked with other artists about, they've been inspired by you, is your practice of 
after you sell a work, you like to collect the work. I think it was Brian Brinkman who commented on this, uh, saying that he thinks that's a, an approach that he would like to actually adopt when he sells a piece he wants to collect. So out of the pieces that you've collected, are there any pieces that you, you treasure the most? Are there any artists that you'd like to, to shout out? Sure, I, I will. I, um, it feels almost like trying to choose among my children or something. But, <laughs> um, and and forgive me in advance if I, if I don't mention you. Like, obviously, if I've collected your work, I think that there's something special to it and special to what you're doing. Um, what jumps out to me, a recent one I picked up that I really love and that I was really excited, you know, there are some works that you're excited to get because, um, again, I am not, I'm not a whale. I'm a, I'm a squid. So it's all to say a piece I picked up recently, uh, is part of the old money series by clear void. And I love the stuff that, that this guy's doing. I, I really, the way he is incorporating public domain 3d objects with, just his own it has like a bit of a vaporwave flavor which i'm super into um was probably clear from my work um you know like anyone i i want to get something for a price that's maybe lower than what it's actually worth but i i as as an artist myself i'm not going to place a bid that's insulting i'm not going to place a bid that i don't think is a fair a, a fair valuation of what that work is based on where that artist is in their career and that's part of what's beautiful about this space. There are artists at many different stages of their careers. There are people newer to the space. There are people who are flooding it with a lot of work. And I'm going, look, these pieces are great and I want one, but you don't have the same scarcity that other people do. So part of it for me is the fun of valuation. And the f- there are two artists I, I have multiples of. Um, and uh, one is Pix, who does this awesome, like, glitchy pixel work that's very rainbowy iridescent i i'm again as probably clear from my work i am a sucker for iridescence um um, and another artist i have collected multiples from is nils hansen who uh i think i think is an uh like an engineer at a at a automaking company in germany if i'm not mistaken if i'm if i'm remembering his bio correctly and you can tell i mean there's some work I collect because it reminds me of my own work and some work I collect because I go, oh man, I could never do that. And I have such appreciation for that, for the precision and the engineering, you know, and, and I'm curious what will end up, because like I said, I, I just had this instance last week and it's the first time this has happened for me that is, it sort of mirrors what can happen in the real art world where, you know, um, the real, uh, the IRL, you know, physical life we live in is what I mean by that. Not that there's anything unreal about crypto art. Um, this, this idea of like studio visits, you know, how collectors will visit your studio. And as a working artist, that's very often, if it's a collector visiting, very often the reason they're visiting is they want to see what you're working on and they want to see what you have on hand. They want to go, what are the pieces you have on hand that you haven't sold? And may I, I'm going to make you an offer and I'm going to buy one. And that happened to me last week with crypto art, um, where I, you know, was able to put together this portfolio uh, or I was put together a collection of works I had on hand that had not been tokenized. And I said, here is what I would like. I would like, you know, one ETH each for each of each of these and I'll, I'll sell you up to five. And this collector and I made this arrangement and I tokenized them and, and, and he bought them. And it's something that it kind of has opened my mind. And the reason I bring this up at this point is because it's something I hope the other artists in the space in hearing about it will realize this is a possibility. Um, and it's something that I, as someone who is also a collector, am going, wait, maybe some of these artists who I feel like I can't afford their work because they get into these crazy bidding wars. Well, all artists have a range of works, you know, and the, the big new thing, of course, gets in this huge bidding war. But maybe it's possible to reach out to an artist and say, look, I know you have a whole back catalog of stuff you've already created. Here's what I would be. Here's what I can spend. Can you show me something I can buy from you? And it's a guaranteed sale. And it's an act of goodwill. Um, and, and, and can we make that arrangement? I know for some artists, they're very concerned about their average sale price. So they might 
rightfully say no. Like, no, I'm not going to sell that to you. I'm used to selling works for thousands and thousands of dollars. So again, like with everything in crypto art, you have to be pragmatic. You can't, if you're living in fantasy land and you're not paying attention to the numbers at all, this this is a space that is, it's the fusion of finance and art. So the numbers matter to people. Um, but anyway, it's, it's just all to say for an artist like myself, um, it was vi- it was a viable mode of making, making a sale. Totally. And well, that's a fantastic insight, that sort of approach. Uh, it's one that I've, I mean, I haven't thought about it, but it's something that I've actually done myself as a collector. Um, but I feel like having someone like yourself talk about that uh, will definitely open up the doors, I think, for other artists, other collectors to approach um, the like collecting uh, in that way. That's awesome. So like, to, to, before we wrap up real quick, I just want to make sure that you shout out all the channels, all the social handles that you need to so folks can find you and your work. Um, so let everyone know where they should check sure. you out at. Well, you know, since since circa 1996, <laughs> I'm I'm the Sarah Show everywhere, um, except for Facebook, which annoyingly I am the Sarah Show on Facebook, but that leads to my personal account, and um, I'd prefer people go to my Facebook page, which is what I use for art. So on Facebook, I'm Sarah E. Zucker, but <laughs> you'll still find me. <laughs> Got it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to finally speak with you, Sarah. I know we yeah, had a likewise. couple of weeks technical difficulties and getting this together, but I'm so I happy mean, that we the world we is it. one big technical difficulty <laughs> right now. So it tracks. <laughs> Amen. Well, thank you so much. And I, I'm really excited to continue to watch your creative journey unfold. And if there's anything else or anything that I could ever help you out with, feel free to reach out to me anytime, but well, thank, thank you so you very much. much. <laughs> hey everybody. It's Matthew again. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with The Sarah Show as much as I did recording it. If you aren't already, make sure that you are subscribed to the You Deserve a Drink podcast wherever you listen. And if you know anyone whom you think would enjoy conversations like this, please recommend this episode or any episode to them. Next week, I'll be releasing the spotlight that I recorded with Paola. I'm really excited to finally get that out and get more eyes on a very, very exciting creative talent. And many of you have probably already seen that Whale Shark has gifted the You Deserve a Drink podcast a monthly grant of his social currency, Whale, for the next year. I'm still thinking about how to best distribute the Whale currency to our listeners. Uh, Rizzo and I are, are actively thinking about the best strategies for that. We're soliciting ideas from the community too of what you guys think would be fun ways to incorporate the whale social currency into the You Deserve a Drink community. So with that, I'll see you on the flip side. Sent on.